All right, please turn back to page 1103 and the 10th chapter of Acts. I think that our congregations sometimes think that preachers are in the habit of repeating themselves unnecessarily. I think there are congregations who feel that way. Uh, it's rather like sometimes when you get to Manchester Airport and uh, you think you're there and the plane has to go round and round and round because they're stacked up and you can't get onto the runway and it seems ages. You think you're getting near it, then you're further away and then you're nearer and at last the undercarriage goes down and you land. And there are preachers who are a little bit like that. We go round and round and round and eventually we land. Well, I hope I never do that, of course. But if that were to happen, I would think I have a good precedent. The New Testament is very repetitive. Take the Acts of the Apostles. Luke, writing the Acts, has a, a limited scroll in what he can say about the story. Yet he tells the story of Saul's conversion three times. Once in chapter 9, in the third person. Twice on the lips of Paul, when he's making a defense for his faith. Wouldn't once have done. But you see, no, it's so terribly important. It's a turning point in the church history. I understand that. But why do we repeat Acts chapter 10 so much? The story you just read, you, you see it's, it's written in chapter 10 and if you watch it very carefully, if we'd read the, the whole chapter, there's a kind of repeat within the chapters. We tell the story over again. And in chapter 11, <clears throat> the Apostle Peter, having met people who disagree with what he's done, uh, there's been confrontation ever since the church was, and when he's a, a, a told off for what he did, he repeats the story again in Acts 11. And if you think that's not enough, later in chapter 15, when they have the Council of Jerusalem, the kind of Lambeth Conference of its day, they're a lot more productive than Lambeth Conference of our day and a lot less expensive. But when they met together uh, at Jerusalem, the Council of Jerusalem, what does Peter do? He repeats the story all over again. He reminds them of what he did on this dramatic occasion. So clearly this is important. Three times. At least we get the story. Why? Because, you see, we are crossing the great Rubicon. If you were here last Sunday night, I, I did point out that Acts, I was on last Sunday night doing Acts from a different angle, and that, you know, the congregations do tend to be evening or morning. I used to remember, it was the Lord's Day when I used to come to church, but it's the Lord's half day nowadays, never mind. Uh, if you come in the evening, if you came in the evening last week, we saw the story of Philip going to Samaria. We saw Philip bringing an Ethiopian chancellor of faith. It was the beginning of the crossing of the great barrier. And very soon by chapter 11, there'll be more Gentiles in the church than Jews. So they have to find a new name. And they decide to call us Christians in Antioch. But Peter's story is the dramatic moment when they cross. Now, please notice how they do it. So differently from the razzmatazz of today. Did you watch all the razzmatazz of the Beijing Olympic Games, which went on, I gather, forever and ever? I thought I'd left visiting late to visit a lady. They were still at it three hours after they began, apparently. I didn't watch the razzmatazz, A, because it bores me, and B, because I do think we're, we're, we are sort of kowtowing to a regime which is doing all sorts of evil things. I think we ought not to be encouraging it in that way. But that's me, that's me. But that's the razzmatazz of Olympic Games, all the fuss and bother. And somebody says, how is London going to outdo it in 2012? I hope we don't even try to outdo it in 2012. I might be dead by then, but if I'm alive, I do hope that they don't. 
But where's the razzmatazz when the first Gentile barrier is crossed? This great moment? Just watch it. Just watch it. Verse 23, Peter invited the men into his, as his guests. He simply invites them into his house. He's broken the barrier. He's invited Gentiles into his Jewish home for hospitality never before. And look at verse 27. When eventually, when eventually in verse 27, Peter goes into a Gentile home, which he'd never done before, the great barrier of his day. Have you noticed it? Just look at it. Talking with Cornelius, Peter went inside. Didn't even stop to notice he got in. He was so busy talking, he didn't even notice. He'd crossed the Rubicon. This was the great moment. Gentiles into the family of God. Ah, wait a minute. If you know your Bible, Peter, having suddenly got the message, goes back on it. Let me just read a few verses. It's very important to get this straight, to get the whole message straight. In Galatians chapter 2, Peter, uh, Paul, writing from Antioch to Galatian Christians, <coughs> says this, uh, Galatians 2.11, <coughs> when, <Peter, coughs> when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to the, his face <coughs> because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. So that by the hypocrisy, even Barnabas, and you can feel uh, Paul who loved Barnabas, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in front of them all, never say it behind their back, say it in front of them all, in front of them all, you are a Jew, and yet live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Peter, you see, had gone back. He'd forgotten that moment. Why did he go back? Because he was under pressure from peers, from his fellow conservatives. Friends, this still happens in the world in which we live. I won't bow down to politics at the moment, but I assure you we're living in a, a nasty world of church politics. And you see, we, we are pressurized in because of the, the peer pressure. Peter gave in, but he came back again. And he came back gloriously because he believed that it was a gospel issue. And Paul would confront him and gloriously change his mind. So as we read uh, this chapter, with that in mind, we are speaking to the world of today. The great truth of this story is that Christ is unique, but Christ is universal. He is the saviour of all mankind. He is the one saviour of all mankind. The truth of this story is not that it doesn't matter whether you hear the gospel or not, because we all get there in the end that all religions are the same. It is that this man, Cornelius, good, lovely man that he was, was not yet converted. He needed the gospel of Jesus. And Peter, who was beginning to understand the Gospels for all, had to have the grace to see that whatever your background, whatever your racial background, you could belong to Christ. Just look at the, the key in verse 34. Peter began to speak when he gets inside this home. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. The word means he doesn't look at the face. He doesn't treat people because of their color. 
He doesn't treat people because of their uh, status. He is the gospel for all. And the challenge that comes to us in our age is never go back on the glory of a gospel that's for all people, but the one way for all. The church is both exclusive and inclusive. When people say to me, do you believe in an inclusive gospel? The answer is always yes and no. One of the great politicians' answer to any questions is yes and no. Of course I believe that all people, whatever their background, may become Christians. Do I believe that it doesn't matter how you behave or what you believe? Of course I, be- I believe it matters supremely how you be- what you believe and how you behave. So this morning, look with me at two people. Always in these Acts 8, 9, and 10, God is having to deal with people at two sides of an equation. He's having to prepare the convert, like last Sunday night, the Ethiopian eunuch. He's having to prepare the uh, person to reach him. Uh, Last week it was Philip. Uh, This week it's uh, Peter. In Acts chapter 9, it was Ananias. And it's intriguing to me that only Philip good namesake. Only Philip was sort of ready for the, for the deed. Uh, Peter was not sure. Did you see in verse 14 Peter's great complaint? Surely not, Lord. If you search the scriptures more than once, Peter said, no, Lord. Would you please note you can never say no, Lord. You can say no, And you can say, yes, Lord, but you can't say, no, Lord, one cancels the other out. If he's Lord, it's always yes. But at this moment, Peter was very unsure, as Ananias was with Saul of Tarsus in chapter 9. Look with me then at two two men. A man who was almost converted, verses 1 to 8, and then was gloriously converted. And then in verses 9 to 23, and going on through the story, a man who was almost convinced became convinced, went back on his convictions and was convinced all over again. That was a long heading, that does, doesn't it? A man who was almost converted, a man who was almost convinced. Almost converted? Look at the man prepared and the moment prepared. The man prepared, it was Caesarea, a lot of Gentiles in Caesarea. He was a Roman centurion. In the Bible, the Roman centurions are a good lot. Have you noticed that? Uh, the centurion whose faith Jesus said was so wonderful that he believed that Jesus could convert, could heal his servant without ever entering his house. Say a word and he'll be healed. What, what faith? The centurion who took Paul on the last journey towards Rome was a very caring centurion. Well, here's a very good centurion. Please look at verse 3. And I ask you, sorry, verse 2. If any vicar had a congregation full of people like this, he'd be pleased. And if every congregation had a vicar like this, they would be pleased too. Look at the the qualities of verse 2. He and his family were devout, God-fearing, giving generously to those in need and praying to God regularly. Isn't that marvellous? Could you, hand on heart, say that's true of you? And yet, and yet, He wasn't a Christian. There's no suggestion here that it didn't matter. Cornelius was all right. No point in Peter travelling the miles to preach. He was already like this. Please pray for summer experience this week. Uh, Years ago, uh, I helped to found Friday Club 
for them. I wish I'd be that great mum, but that was for them, the oldies. And I uh, felt it was time that the oldies had something for them. Now it's for me, for us. We're part of it now. And one of the things at the Friday Club is that I meet a lot of men and women, particularly the men I get alongside, who are de- decent guys. They really are. And there's so much about them that's attractive. They'd make wonderful Christians. But they're not. Yet. Do pray for the summer experience. It'd be good fun. But also because, let's face it, we who are getting older, we haven't as much time to make up our mind. And uh, let's pray that God will break through into their lives. This Cornelius was a good man. But he wasn't a Christian. It all had to wait till Peter arrived and began to preach about Jesus. There is no shortcut. The man prepared. Second little moment prepared. When did it all happen? Verse 3. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. What I always think of as kick-off time. Uh, If you follow these things. It it just behoves me to say, as as a neutral observer of the scene, I have to comment on the fact that, uh, if you hadn't noticed, that a team called Sheffield Wednesday are top of the championship today. (laughs) It is, of course, only one game been played. There's only one game been played, but we are top. Uh, please don't blink before, because next time you look there may be a long way away but I do tell you this time last season we were bottom of the championship so I am sort of rejoicing that has got nothing to do with corneas but it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> and 3 o'clock in the afternoon is the right time for all football matches well at 3 o'clock in the afternoon something happened it could have been a Saturday too you never know it could well have been the Sabbath day but it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon and what happened he prayed he prayed at the appropriate time He prayed liturgically. You know, I have a great belief in the importance of meeting together to worship. God could be doing something at 10 o'clock, whatever time it is now, 11 o'clock this Sunday morning, as we meet, as we often meet, slightly different time from normal, but we meet. And he went and prayed as he normally prayed. It was a prayer time. If you like your story in Acts chapter 3, it was the same time of the day when the lame man was healed in that dramatic story in Acts chapter 3. But there he was, ready to pray, and God heard his prayer so much that in verse 3 he had a vision. Here's God working at this side. He had a vision, and he saw an angel, and he spoke to him by name, and Cornelius responded in verse 4 exactly like Saul of Tarsus had responded in chapter 9. It was all very similar. And God said, your prayers have been like a sacrifice. So I thought that. I often ponder, why does prayer matter? When I drag myself in early morning, get down by my, uh, my desk and begin to pray, just occasionally I think, kind of, does all this make any sense? Did Almighty God actually bother with the world I'm praying about through my prayers by that desk in a flat in Sheffield? Well, of course I believe it, and I believe in a sort of wonderful way these prayers become like incense going up to God and in Acts chapter, in Revelation chapter 8, it says the prayers of the saints went up like incense to God and it came down like an earthquake and fire. Prayer can be a dangerous weapon. Well, this time it was gracious and the message came to go uh, to send for Simon and immediately Cornelius being a good centurion did as he was told and sends off his soldiers. The moment was prepared. Just before I move on, uh, Andrew made a, a jocular beginning to the service today. 
No, it wasn't. It was, it was, no, it was, it was Kate, I, I apologise, who called us a motley crew. Uh, we are a motley crew. Uh, and the suggestion was there might be people with whom we wouldn't normally get on if we weren't in the same church. I wonder if you did ponder who it might be in this congregation. <laughs> If you did, may I suggest that after service you go and talk to them over coffee. They're exactly the people you need to talk to. But it is a, a remarkable reminder that the Bible says that if God is no respecter of persons, nor should we. In uh, Romans chapter 15 verse 7, Paul says, Accept one another as Christ has accepted you. God was preparing this Roman centurion to receive Peter, and Peter, we're going to see in a moment, had to be convinced that he, a Jew, should be willing to get alongside this man, a Gentile. Because every day of his life, as a good Jew, he had said, thank you, Lord, I wasn't born a Samaritan, and I wasn't born a Gentile. And now, it didn't matter anymore. Not, a man, not converted yet, but it would be eventually. Not convinced, verses 9 to 23. Peter was more of a problem. He had to go one step at a time with Peter. But notice just one little thing. Where was Simon living in verse 6? Well, he was staying with another Simon, and Simon the Tanner. Nothing to do with the two families of our congregation called Tanner. But the Tanner of those days was, of course, a, an unclean occupation. Peter shouldn't have been there. He was already breaking the rules. He was already beginning to compromise. It was just beginning slowly but surely. And then he has the vision. The revelation of the vision. And the revolution in the vision. Now please take it carefully. Visions and dreams. I don't know how you work it out. He went into a trance verse 10. But it was a vision. And the vision had very obvious links. We'll see in a moment. But the vision in the Bible has unique Historic significance. You may have dreams. I have dreams. Most of my dreams have no meaning whatsoever. And if it's any meaning at all, I don't like what it might be. But they're, they're not any biblical vision. But I can trust the visions of Scripture because by the Spirit of God, they're enshrined in the authoritative, infallible Word of God. I believe that. Keep on believing it. I'm reading the life of J.C. Ryle, Bishop of Liverpool at the moment, and I'm being encouraged by that first Bishop of Liverpool who believed without any doubt in the authority, inspiration of the Word of God. Therefore, these visions have a special revelation. Notice when it happened. It was noon the next day. These Gentiles from Cornelius were on their way. It was noon. Uh, he was on the roof, and he was looking out over the sea, and he was hungry, so he could see sails of ships. He felt inside he wanted some food, so he had a, a, a vision of food in, in, in sheets. It all makes sense. Incidentally, for those who have doubts about the Bible, just look for which I just think intriguing. There's a word in verse 10, hungry, which is only found once else in Greek literature. I mean, now here's an important thing. Only found once else in Greek literature in a, a, a thesis by a uh, doctor of the first century. And he writes, an eye doctor. Why an eye doctor was talking about being hungry, I have no idea. But apparently it's the only place in, in literature where this word comes. Is it possible that Dr. Luke had read this thesis by this Greek doctor and he had this unusual word for hunger and he wanted to bring it in? I have no idea. But it all helps me to see 
how real historical the scripture is. And feeling hungry, using that word, he saw the sheet and he saw the food and came the message. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Whose was the voice that told him in verse 13 in the vision? I have no doubt it was the familiar voice of Jesus. He remembered that voice so well. Because he refers to him, surely not Lord. The kind of word he would use of Jesus. Surely not Lord. And Jesus was trying to say, haven't I told you before? Mark chapter 7. Well, it wouldn't have been Mark chapter 7 when he said it. But it was in Mark chapter 7. That no matter, it doesn't matter anymore what you eat. It's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. What comes out of a man. You won't become clean by not touching food that you shouldn't touch. By touching food that you shouldn't touch, you'll become unclean by a heart that needs cleansing. And out of the heart of man, says Mark 7, comes evil thoughts and so on. Mark 7 says, verse 19, Thus he made all meats clean. And suddenly Peter heard that familiar voice saying, Do you remember? Eat. Oh, never. Three times to get the message across. And the challenge that comes home. What's it all about? Will you notice that eventually he ponders the meaning of the vision, verse 17. And again in verse 19, he's still thinking about the vision. And suddenly it dawns as these three men arrive, Gentiles, what it's all about. May I just say a word, because it's very important, about the Old Testament law. You see, there are three parts of the Old Testament law, and in a very real sense, they're all fulfilled in Christ in, in a different way. There is in the Old Testament the ceremonial law, the law about priests and what they should wear, <clears throat> sacrifices and what you should offer. And Jesus was the high priest, the final sacrifice, and all is finished. We don't wear Old Testament garb anymore. That's gone. We don't offer animal sacrifices anymore. We don't have an altar in church anymore. That's gone. So the ceremonial law finished. The moral law? Well, of course, the moral law remains. The commandments remain. The New Testament picks up the commandments, keeps on telling us. And we're reminded. But the moral law brings us to Christ because we don't do it. We fail and we come to Christ in penitence because we recognize our failure and then the, the, the law remains our guide for all that lies ahead. Last Wednesday I was doing a little communion service down there a little faithful midweek communion from my beloved 1662 which I don't get a chance to use much these days. That is, by the way, a book of common prayer of long-standing value. And I was reading the collect for last week and the collect of last week talks about obtaining God's gracious promises and running the way of God's commandments. I obtain the promises because that's the only way I get into the kingdom, but I must seek to run the way of the commandments. That's my guide. So the ceremonial law fulfilled in Christ, priest, the moral law still there, but I'm not under law, I'm not saved by law, because I have failed, I've been led to Christ, but those are the parameters of my living. And then there's the hygiene law. Oh, please, don't be conned by those who say when they're trying to defend homosexuality, well, it's in Leviticus, you see, and it's just the same as eating prawns. We eat prawns now, why shouldn't we have homosexual activity? Don't believe that is nonsense. And the people who say it know it's nonsense. But we are conned all too often 
the New Testament picks up homosexuality. I read it in my Bible reading this morning in 1 Corinthians 6. It comes in Romans, it comes in Corinthians, it comes in Timothy. It's a law of the New Testament. The prawns are a completely different issue. And the hygiene laws, yes, you can make sense of the kind of animals, but they were there to point out there's clean and there's unclean. And there comes a point when we need the answer to the uncleanness that lies at the heart of all of us. Not a matter of animals now, something deeper. And it's only in Christ that we can be cleansed. And if you read on to the end of Acts chapter 10, if we had to stop at verse 23, if you read on to the end of the story, what happens at the end? They're baptized. And they're given the mark of being cleansed. And Paul, uh, Peter had to say, can I refuse baptism for these people? Because the Holy Spirit had come upon them. And the baptism was a symbol, the sign of being made clean. It's a lovely symbol, only a symbol, but a very important symbol that I need to be cleansed. The revelation in the vision that God can cleanse all people and all people need to be cleansed. So not the revolution in the vision what will now happen is quite remarkable. Having had the vision, having seen what it's all about, he goes off with them, does Peter, and he walks into this room. Please look at verse 33. As a preacher, verse 33 is, is a wonderful verse, and I think it's true for you today, I hope it is. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Did you come like that this morning? That's a word for every congregation. That's why we come under the word of God. No, we're not here to sort of think it over. Sometimes people say to me, you've given me a lot of food for thought. And I'm quite happy about that, so long as it's food for thought which will lead to action. It's not just a matter of, I'll discuss it. Nice to hear your point of view. The word of God is to be obeyed. And it's a word, verse 33, to every preacher. You see, I must be sure that when I open up God's word, I open up God's word with all its authority. I have different views about all sorts of different things that aren't central to Christianity. You can get my views. You might disagree with my enthusiasm about Sheffield Wednesday. You may feel I'm completely benighted. You're every right to feel that way. You're wrong, but you can think that way if you like. But that's not me speaking with the authority of Scripture. When I open up the word of God then it's a challenge to me to do just that. I hope I have. And I hope if you disagree with what I've said, you're not disagreeing with what the Bible says. You've every right to disagree with Hacking. He's very, very frail and fallible. But if you disagree with what the Bible says, you're in trouble. The revolution in the vision... Here was a congregation, read it, hear what the Lord would say. So what did Peter do when he's got this congregation there? He starts off in verse 34 by saying God has no favourites. He starts off by saying that those from every background he's ready to talk to, and then what? He preaches Jesus. Every time I come into this pulpit, I'm reminded, sir, we would see Jesus. That's what it says there. And that's what Peter did. He simply preached the story of Jesus. He preached about his death and resurrection. And he, was, he preached in verse 43 that if you believe in him, 
then whoever believes receives forgiveness through his name. And while he was still at it, the Spirit came. While the plane was still circling around the airport, while the preacher was still coming, he hadn't got down yet, the Spirit moved in a special way. It was like Pentecost. They spoke in tongues as at Pentecost, as probably in Samaria we saw last Sunday night. He was a special demonstration for a very special moment. And Peter said, well, can I, anyone keep these people, verse 47, from being baptized? Do get it. These were the first Jews to be, first non-Jews to be baptized. This was revolution. They were actually being I suppose the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter, in, in chapter uh, 10 was, it was the first individual. But here was a great moment when you're breaking into this world of them. And look, just glance over to chapter 11 and listen to what Peter said when he was confronted by his conservative friends who said they should be circumcised. They must become one of us. We can't accept them until they're circumcised. Chapter 11, verse 17. If God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to think that I could oppose God? Let me finish by being, I hope not controversial, but by bringing it to where we are today. That was, this was a unique moment. And we had to live in the light of the fact that the gospel is for all people, whatever their background. Please, the Jew didn't cease to be a Jew because he became a Christian. I had a debate with a young man who was a Jew who became a Christian and he didn't want to take the title that many Jews do who become Christians, Messianic Jews. Uh, he respected them for doing that, but he, he said, no, I want to be called a Christian. To me, that's more important. The Jewishness of my race is still there, but being Christian is far more important than being Jewish, but it's still a Jew. And we don't cease to be a different race, a different temperament, because we're Christians. We can rejoice in our racialness, but we rejoice even more that we're in that which supersedes all race, all background. Gentlemen, this congregation, and he, he, he was sorry himself, so I have no hesitation in passing it on. He once said to me, Philip, my problem is that I find it easier to get on with non-Christians of my social background than Christians not of my social background. And he was sad about it. And I was slightly was honest, but I was sad about it. Do you find it that way? Do you mix more readily with the kind of people you know, you, you're easy with because of your social background? Can you demonstrate that you're mixed with very, very different people from different races, from different parts of Sheffield, and you're one in Christ? Our ministry support team go out to little groups all over. Terribly important that we demonstrate that we in Fulwood are one in Christ with them. But my last word, and I, I, I say it from the depth of my heart, I believe we are on the edge of a great reformation. I long for it to happen. If it passes by, I shall feel very sad. But I think it won't. In the 16th century, it had to happen when the great reformation happened. It happened again in the great evangelical awakening in the days of Wesley. My hero, William Grimshaw, stayed in the Church of England, but there was a great move of the Spirit of God. And when you read the state of the church then, and I read my J.C. Ryle to fire me up again, that's where we are today. 
we desperately need. You read the comments of the lady presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church in America, and you have to say to her, that lady is not Christian by any sense of that word in what she believed, in what she behaved, how she behaves, and what she inculcates behaving. It's not two different Christians learning to get on with each other. If you think that, then the word Christian has been vacated of all its meaning, denying the basic truths of the Christian faith. That's where I believe we are. These are as crucial days in one sense as the day of Peter. And what unites genuine believers is that they believe in the person of Jesus, they believe in his death on the cross, they believe in the reality of his resurrection, and they believe that only in him is their salvation. That's what unites us. See, this passage does not even remotely begin to say that all religions lead to God. It says that all people of all backgrounds need Jesus. That's what it says. Not least the decent people who respond as they can. When I was a, a very young minister, many, many years ago, a then retired bishop from India came to speak to our group. So you can see the long gap there was between the two. And he talked about the day when the gospel first came to his part of India, which was going back even further. And he said it was very significant. When the gospel first came to our group of our India, came to India, the good Hindus who did their best to keep what they believed their religion meant, when they heard about Jesus immediately knew this was what they were looking for. And the bad Hindus, for whom religion was just an excuse, turned their back. He said, I, I felt it almost as if it was a, the day of judgment happening in my very eyes, in front of my eyes. Because when they heard of Jesus, they wanted him. They found him. Cornelius didn't for a minute suggest that I'm all right. I don't need all that. He responded immediately. And you see, at the center was the message of the cross. What unites us as believers is not just baptism, which is a symbol. What unites us is the cross of which baptism speaks. And if you remember when Paul writes in Ephesians about the cross, he says it brings peace between man and God and peace between man and man. I was intrigued to find. When was J.C. Ryle, the first bishop of Liverpool, converted? He was converted in a church in Oxford, not by a sermon, but by the reading of Ephesians 2. By grace are you saved through faith. And before the preacher got to preach, J.C. Ryle had become a Christian. But it was that peace with God and peace with others that comes through the cross. And it's at the cross that we find cleansing. And there's no difference. Every individual needs to be cleansed. And in Christ alone, we can be cleansed. Let's pray.